Hi everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Delta Talks, a TNT podcast by Delta Partners. If you're new here, welcome. We're so glad you're tuning in. If you've been here before, welcome back. My name is Armand Heimans. I'm part of the consulting team here at Delta Partners and also an avid podcast listener. In today's episode, we'll be speaking to Alberto Pamias, a Senior Managing Director at Delta Partners, and Leonardo Ortiz, VP of Development and International at Co.org. In today's episode, they'll introduce the Co.org movement, its journey and expansion, as well as some of the challenges and opportunities ahead, and how Delta is planning to support Co.org international development. Let's hear from Roberto and Leo. Thanks, and and really thrilled to be here with uh, Leo. Um, we've been working for some weeks now, a, a couple of months, but um, I'm really excited to share this interview with the rest of the firm. And uh, Leo, thank you for being with us today. Hi, Alberto. Nice, nice to be here with you. Uh, it's it's been a challenging one because you're sitting in Seattle, I'm sitting in in Dubai, so it's very early for you and very late for me. But I don't think there's going to be any there's not going to be any impediment for an interesting conversation. Okay. So, uh, Leo, first, uh, uh, I, I I would like you to explain to all of us what is uh, what is code.org and what what is the spirit, how how that was born, and and what is the ultimate objective at the end. Perfect. Uh, well, thanks. Uh, thank you very much again. It's it's great to be able to talk to the whole firm uh, through this podcast. Um, Code.org is a nonprofit organization. It was founded in 2013 in the United States, but it always had global aspirations. Uh, the main mission of Code.org is to bring computer science education to all students in all classrooms around the world. The idea of that mission is that computer science should be now a foundational subject, something that everyone learns in the school. Because in the same way in which you and I, Alberto, learned uh, chemistry or physics uh, or biology when we were growing up, in a digital world like the one we have today, learning computer science allows students to better understand how the world works. So that, that's the foundational aspect of it. There are more pragmatic aspects to it, which has to do with the new world of work. Uh, as, as the world of work becomes even more digital, knowing not only how to use technology, but how to create technology is now going to be a basic skill that everyone has to have, no matter what job and no matter what industry people are in. So that's the reason why this is our our mission and and what we're trying to do. Uh, I can get more into the how we do it. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to stop there in case you want uh, to ask me a clarifying question on this. Yes, uh, I mean, when when we listen to to you, Leon, and and the motivation of Code.org, I mean, the first reaction is like, uh, I mean, yes, of course. I mean, like, why not? Right? We're talking. You're talking about children's education. You're talking about children's education in computer science, you're talking about children's education in computer science for free, right? So yes. all, 
all, all that all that is good. I mean, who, who can say no? And if this is the case, what is the real challenge to grow? Why, why this is not happening already now all around the world? The challenge is that this requires to transform the education system. The education system has been like it is for almost 200 years, like the current model that we see in schools, the, the average model around the world, is one that was invented after the Industrial Revolution. So there are subjects there that have been for decades and decades. Introducing a new subject in the school system is very hard. Now, having said that, there is some computing, some technology classes that have been incorporated into the education system, especially after year 2000, when when the internet was becoming more prevalent in the world. The problem is that most of what students do in schools is they, they receive lessons about how to use technology, not about how to create technology. Um, and that's, that's the challenge. So if you ask me, what is the big uh, blocker in the world? Or, or the reality first is that most schools in the world don't teach this. So as obvious as it might seem to you, uh, the reality is that the majority of schools don't teach computer science. Uh, half of the world don't even have access to technology and to the internet. The other half that does have, not everyone teaches computer science. And the schools that are teaching a technology class are primarily teaching what we call digital literacy, which is more about, this is a screen, this is a mouse, this is a keyboard, this is how you do a document, this is how do you do a spreadsheet or a presentation. That is fine, we all need that, but that's a given. It's like what need, kids need to learn now is how do you create an app? How do you build something? And, and that's what we're, we're trying to do. And it's slowly advancing around the world. Mm -hmm. And who is uh, who is behind the movement? I, I mean, I, I would assume that this needs a, a wide variety of backers from donors, from policymakers, from tech companies. So who, who is really behind this? I think you you mentioned the key word of this movement. This is not a mission that a sole organization is going to be able to achieve. Uh, it's, it's a movement. There are many of us. Uh, Code.org happens to play a key role. Um, and I'll answer your question. Just, let me just give you an anecdote. Because we created a campaign that is called the Hour of Code that became very well received, not only in the United States, but around the world. This, this idea, this Hour of Code is the idea that in just one hour, a student or a teacher can try and feel what it is to code for the first time just in one hour. And in that one hour, hopefully, they will get inspired and motivated to continue learning more. So we created this in 2013. Until today, we've had already 1.5 billion times that someone has done an hour of code in more than 180 countries and territories in the world. So it's spread everywhere. And that's that's one of the way, the things that we do. But you ask, does it, what does it take? Who is behind this? So this hour of code is happened, it, it, it happens or is possible because we have partners 
all over the world. Many of them are nonprofit partners. So those were like the first uh, obvious partners that started working with us to promote this idea. There are millions of teachers that get involved regardless of whether their school system is asking them to do so or not. They just see that this is something that is amazing to bring to the classroom. Their students get engaged and excited. They want to try it. Um, but when you go more from a, from an institutional standpoint, uh, it is nonprofits, it is academia, like there's universities supporting this. There is the private sector in industries. The obvious industry to support this is the tech industry, but that's not the only one. Uh, there are, you know, nowadays, all industries require this talent. So we have technology companies, telecom companies, the financial, the financial industry is now basically a tech industry. Like they cannot function without uh, technology. So we see a lot of different industries. And of course, the authorities, they need to get engaged. And slowly we've been getting, uh, we've been building also a coalition that includes policymakers, educational leaders, government leaders. So there are government, when a government, we need the government ultimately because this is about changing the education system. You need everyone else, but if the government is not on board, it's always the movement is always going to function like an after-school effort. And if you only function like an after-school effort, then you don't transform the education system. Hence, right. sustainability will not be there. Yeah, and probably this is as you were as you were mentioning the the piece that is more difficult to change because it's it i mean the, the legacy of decades of decades of the same while probably the agility of the tech or the financial institutions and the support of all the others are like uh, um much quicker to have right so uh and and uh, leo what is what is your role in in all this I am the vice president of development and international at code.org. I kind of wear two hats. I'm going to start with the international one, which means that everything that we do outside of the United States is, is my responsibility. So I, I need to, and we make that separation because as a US based org, we started executing deeper in the United States. We have a lot of impact here. And, and the, the proactive work outside of the U.S. Uh, wasn't uh, that robust. <laughs> so, so now we're in this mode in which we want to scale. And that's part of my job. The other part of my job is development as in fundraising, not as in technology development. So my role is to raise funds for, to support the whole organization, not just the international part of it. And that that has its challenges and opportunities as well. Good. So we, what what is uh, uh, I mean in because this is something that we will that we will face in in our role expanding internationally, but we'll we'll get there. Uh, which are the main challenges in in this uh, in this expansion and fundraising that? Uh, role that you're facing look i there there are various um and maybe i i can explain better 
the four areas of focus that we have and the main challenges that we face there. So, or, or I'm going to explain them based on challenges. Challenge number one is when people don't understand how important this is and there is no sense of urgency. The way that we address that is we have a whole line of work that has to do with raising awareness. The hour of code is a great example of that. So one of the first things, and that's, that's where you first need the movement. That's where the movement of all these other players that are, are not the school system can play an important role, which is just raising the voice and, and, these, and demand, generating demand for computer science. So you do campaigns, you do uh, videos, you show role models. Through videos, you demonstrate that this is for everyone. So that's awareness. The second challenge is you need to change the education policies. That's very hard. And it takes a long time. Sometimes it takes years to achieve. So our second area of focus is policy advocacy. You also need a movement there. The private sector plays a very important role telling the government that they need to get on with the times <laughs> and they need to prepare the future workforce for the needs that the industry is facing right now. So you, you see how the movement also plays a role in awareness first to generate excitement, second in, in doing the advocacy, pressing as much as possible the education authorities for them to make a shift. And there's a lot, a lot of work and coordination that goes behind that piece. The third challenge is there's not enough content and not enough content in local languages and not enough content that is optimized for local realities around the world. And so if suddenly a teacher wants to teach, like, where do they go? <laughs> what did they use in terms of, of, of materials, of lessons and lesson plans? And that's why code.org has been creating hundreds of hours of lessons to have this curriculum that is available for free. It's free, it's open source, and it's designed to be both self-guided and also to be facilitated by a teacher. And we have hundreds of hours that cover all the way from kindergarten to the end of secondary education. So that's, that's our, our focus. And then the last challenge, even if you have excitement, policies, and content, if you don't have teachers that have the capacity to teach computer science, then you're going to hit a roadblock because then who teaches this? That's a big problem. That's actually the hardest one in the long term to address because that becomes a constant. Uh, there are, there's, there's a lot of challenges in the world with retaining teachers. There's, there's a shortage of teachers in many countries. Uh, and, and that's the four area of work. And of course, underlying all that, you need money yeah. to do this, right? Right, exactly. Um, is it is it fair to say, Leo? I mean, listening listening to what you just said, uh, is it fair to say that the challenge of the internationalization of the movement is is twofold? And one is to get into new geographies, to convince them, to talk to educational uh, um, and policymakers, so on and so forth. But at the same time, there is a bottleneck that also is another challenge that is uh, um, transform code.org in the sense that they were working 
So now we need more content. So we need more languages. So we need uh, um, how to go and um, um, and approach advocacy when you are not in the U.S. So that is is it is that fair to say that that we are we are just uh, trying to get in these two things? How so? Code.org when it was created, um, the founder Hadi Partovi, uh, who is a successful uh, tech entrepreneur, um, he thought, I'm going to create this thing. I'm going to raise a lot of awareness, build a movement, get it going. And eventually, the interest will be there. The work is going to get done. And code.org is going to go out of work. Like, that was his idea. It's like, this shouldn't be an organization that lasts forever. We should enable uh, the right players right. to do what they need to do. And once the government takes this on, then there's no, there's not going to be any need for an organization to keep doing what we do. That was his idea. Um, his first, even though he had a, a global mindset, uh, from a practical standpoint, he thought we're going to do this work in the United States. But when we did at, at first, that's what they were trying to do. The first hour of code campaign raised so much awareness internationally that then it, and start they started getting emails and calls and and, and code.org the first reaction was we we only operate in the united states we cannot go and do anything else but then they realized that the appetite was such that they said look our content is free it's open source here it is use it you can do whatever you want with it go and do your hour of code that obviously wasn't that easy so the team immediately realized they had to develop something to do knowledge transfer. So they, they developed these how-to templates. So, okay, if, you are, if you're going to do a campaign in, in UAE or in India or in Japan, this is the recipe. <laughs> so they created this very easy to, to, to understand the documents. And they said, okay, people started saying we need to translate the content. So they, because it's open source, they put all of our content in a crowdsourcing translation platform. So then code.org just used to say to everyone, you want to be a partner of us, fill this template, answer a few questions. We'll give you the, the name of code.org international partner. You get a little logo, you, you use our materials. And if you want to translate, you do it on your own, but with volunteers. That's in, in that way, code.org grew to have presence, quote unquote, presence in 185 countries and territories. Like we have accounts, we have users in all these, in all these countries. We have more than a hundred partners spread through over 70 or almost close to 80 countries. So if you ask me, do we have presence globally? Yes, we do. There are, we have a partner network. The problem with that off approach and it can only get you so far it can drive over four things that i taught awareness policy content and teacher training it does wonders for the awareness piece but it doesn't advance the advocacy that well it doesn't do it, it does the work of bringing curriculum like halfway and it doesn't do much for teacher training so when i joined in 2019 i was hired by code.org because of my past professional experience to come and scale this uh, and we started doing proactive work for the first time, for example, in translation. Instead of waiting to see some if someone wanted to translate our stuff uh, as a volunteer, we started investing. 
and we started paying for translation. So we set up a roadmap of 30 languages. Those 30 languages are considered official language in 150 something countries in the world. So we said, okay, if we do these 30 languages, we're gonna be pretty much okay around the world. So we started translating the primary education content and we started seeking partnerships directly with governments that we were not speaking to in the past. We were waiting for our local partners to do that. But, but then you don't, you don't control the timing. You don't control the experience of how you scale. And eventually, even the education authorities want to speak with someone that has done this or have seen how this is done in other places. And that's where we have an asset, right? Not only our content, but our know-how. So that's, one, that's a journey. One, one question. You, you mentioned, Leo, that um, uh, the movement started in 2000. 2013 and uh, suddenly I mean had or gathered a lot of backers and from from all sides uh, so from from society but could you could you share with us some of those names so people understand what is the caliber of the people philanthropists politicians that are behind so so uh, you know in a way building this uh, the, I should also be there, right? If all these people is there. So yeah. could, could you share with us who are the, the big names here? Yes, of course. It, it's funny, even before the, the corporations, the, one of the first calls that Hadi, our, our founder, made, he called Bill Gates. Like he happened to know, know Bill Gates. No, he was, our founder is a person that developed, that, that, that was successful within the tech industry and he used to work for Microsoft and for Bill. And, and he called him and he asked him for his support. That was a no-brainer. And then Bill said, yeah, I will support this. Uh, he, the second call was to Mark Zuckerberg. And so he went and started calling all his friends in the tech industry. His friends happened to be CEOs and founders of these companies. One of the ways in which they at first supported this is they all agreed to be in a video. Uh, you can see, you go to our curriculum and you see videos. You see Bill Gates explaining you how a computer works. Or Bin Cerf, who invented the modern internet, explaining the internet. You know, you have we have those figures in our in our curriculum, and that brought corporate partnerships. So one, some of our major uh, corporate partners, which means that they are funders, but they do more than that. They do a lot of advocacy work themselves and, and awareness. Are Amazon, Google, Microsoft. Uh, we also have like Cisco and Infosys and, and even newer companies like Atlassian and others. Um, so those are a few examples. Um, and, and now we're just seeing support from all sorts of industries. Last, when was this? In July, we launched a campaign in the United States called CEOs for CS. CEOs for CS, we asked CEOs of all industries from the top 1,000 CEOs in the world to sign a letter. This was very US-centric, but we asked them to sign a letter calling the 50 governors of the United States and the education authorities to do more to bring computer science into schools. And we got the signatures, not only of the companies that I already mentioned, but we had all the major banks. We had... Uh, we had the financial sector industries. We had Walmart. We had Nike. 
We had Starbucks. We had John Deere, a company that builds tractors for, uh, you know, for agriculture. We had many, many different companies. And that was just amazing to see that they all recognize that this is important and that it's going to be needed for their industries as well. I, I learned that CEOs for CES, there was about close to a thousand CEOs signing that letter. Yeah, I right? go to the website and see the caliber, you know, the names of the people that signed is impressive. But even more so, we asked them to tweet the day of the launch. We have a collections of tweets, like from Bill Gates, from Tim Cook, from Satya Nadella, from the CEO of Google, of Amazon. It's just, it's just impressive, yes. To see that, wow. that support. Good, good to hear that was that was a, in the previous Twitter, but probably now uh, <laughs> it's not going to be the same. How, how about social reference? Because I I I also learned that that social reference really connected to the segment that that this movement is addressed. Uh, we're also joining from singers, from actors, from um sportsman so or sportswoman it was clear to us that we needed to inspire uh, students and teachers and the parents as well so we have a, a a wide cast of of supporters from serena williams or or people like neymar uh, and sergio ramos and marcelo and like football player shakira um and, and, and many others, as you say, singers, um, uh, sport legends, and, and others. But in, so that's one on one end. We also started um, seeing, we started doing activities that were very well received um, with heads of state and heads of government. So, so you, you're gonna see videos of like President Obama coding or President Biden or the prime minister of the UK or Malaysia, you know, we have from or Argentina and Chile, from many different uh, countries. We recently had uh, the president of the government of Spain and the, the king and the queen of Spain. Uh, a few weeks ago, we did an activity with Queen Rania from Jordan. So those are references, as you say, and you have references of all types. Some of these people motivate some audiences other people motivate others but you need to get motivation and you need you need to foster that motivation among students amongst teachers amongst parents and educational leaders so it's good to have a good mix you know whoever speaks to you right and and getting probably into the into the last questions uh two months ago we started a a very a promising collaboration uh and, and we are definitely seeing ourselves that this definitely resonates. But there is a distance between resonating and finding agreement in a, in a meeting room, getting all the way to uh, build something in the countries, right? And right. we're talking about countries that are, I don't know, from United Arab Emirates, but all the way to Pakistan, where... Uh, the whole, the whole society is a little bit more unstructured. Sometimes there is not even uh, um, appropriate communication systems. So what is the, 
What, what is your, your advice to us uh, as the ones that are now getting into these uh, uh, new geographies? Uh, what is it your advice to us to make it happen? Well, first of all, I'm just so excited to be talking and, and working with, with your staff. You have like very high caliber uh, staff. Uh, even, even other people at code.org, and we believe that we have a lot of high caliber folks here have been impressed with how your team has been able to absorb, analyze, research information. And, and and very rapidly understand and digest what's needed and then and then help us better understand uh, the reality of a country. I think the main challenge for all of us collectively is scaling. Scaling is is what ultimately we are trying to achieve. If we don't scale, then it, it, the effort is worthless because we're we're talking about impacting millions of students full education systems. So we need to create a model that scales. Now, the thing is that scaling globally, you cannot do that in a one size fits all approach. And that's what we are, that's what we expected when we entered this partnership, that you were gonna help us figure out how to scale our model that has been proven heavily in the US and also in other countries, but not, not in full, uh, mode, um, how to scale that in the appropriate way on a country by country basis. There are commonalities, but there are differences. And, and I think that's what we are understanding those, you know, which are the commonalities and which are the difference is perhaps the first step towards doing the scaling successfully. And also who to talk to, like what buttons to push, um, you were saying earlier, it seems like it would be easy, but it is not. It is not because you face a lot of different challenges that are that are local and that have to do with the, the local environment that sometimes you don't you don't understand. Like you may face resistance in a country because there are some interests between political parties, and there's something else going on that has nothing to do with the education, but before, but because a government leader brings this idea. And that government leader may have a lot of internal opposition, then you become uh, a pawn. <laughs> uh, you know, the subject becomes a pawn in a fight that has nothing to do with education. You see that in the political spectrum, you see that in the economic spectrum as well, right? Someone may not understand <laughs> that our content is free, or maybe maybe because it's free, it's a challenge for someone else that is trying to sell something to the government. Right. So there are various challenges and and the and that's why we hadn't been um, successful in scaling globally in the previous model. But now what we're aspiring to do is to get with your help and with the methodology that you bring to the table, get a better understanding of this local context, the challenges and just what you do, right, for, for, for industries. Give them uh, a set of recommendations of what's the path, which are the right levels to, levers to pull in order to do a successful implementation of something or a, of an initiative in a country. Good, and now just to, uh, uh, probably we're, we're, reaching, we're reaching an end and it's good to 
it's good to share here that uh, out of the effort that we are that we are leading, we are very, very, very close to the first three memorandum of understanding. Two of them being in significant and big countries. Uh, but when when do you will claim victory for us in the next two years? What what is for you victory? Well. I, I don't even know that two years is going to be uh, the, the, I think there are stages. You never claim victory. It's like we've been doing this in the United States for almost 10 years. And we, we win small, we win battles. Uh, and those battles get you closer to the end goal. But, but not, not to the full thing. So I think there, there, are, there are milestones. I think we will claim victory every time that we hit an important milestone. I think, I think that's going to be it. Like you hit a, an important milestone when you get a, the agreement from, from a government that they want to pursue this, but then they need to do it. <laughs> there, there are milestones like when some country changes legislation or adopts a policy, but then the implementation of that policy takes years. So then you start, you know, in the United States, there's already more than 51% of high schools uh, teach computer science. So when we cross the 50% mark, we celebrate it, but still, we, we still need 49%. So it's very hard to claim victory when you're there. You need to keep going. Um, when we started Code.org in the United States, there were only eight states that recognized computer science as a subject to count towards a credit for graduation, now is 50. But now that's not enough. Now we want all 50 states to require CS to graduate. It's a very different thing. Right now it's an optional, but if you be, if you mandate it as a requirement, then you're gonna have to take computer science in the same way that you take a math credit. So mm -hmm. right now there's five states. We want to get 50 in the next five to eight years. So. That's how we claim victory when we start get hitting some of those milestones. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully, Leo, we will we will keep on claiming victories also in that part of the world. Yes, uh, we're close to those meaningful milestones. More to come, but um, uh, above all, uh, thank you very much, Leo, for uh, for uh, trusting on us on such an honorable objective and audacious uh, movement. And thank you, thank you for being with us today. And uh, hopefully we'll see you soon in the region to celebrate one of these battles that we're going to win soon. Exactly. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's been a pleasure. I'll let you end your day as I start mine. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Take care. Bye.